3: What's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, your liberty-loving Latino amigo right here, 17 miles away from Madison Square Garden in New York City. Big shout-out to everybody that's listening on 1210 WPHT in Philly, the city of brotherly love. Big shout-out to everybody listening on the podcast as well, and welcome to the program. So there's a bunch of things I want to talk about. Now, on Tuesday the uh, president marked his one-year anniversary of saying that inflation was only going to be transitory, and we're going to get to that in a little bit. But first, I want to talk about Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas from the Department of Homeland Security, who says the southern border is secure. Obviously, this is amidst the uh, onslaught of record illegal border crossings. Listen to this. Speaking the border, is the border safe? Now, I was watching a news channel and they were talking about an invasion
1: was happening and I got a little concerned. Look, (laughs) (laughs) Um, the border, the border is secure, the border. uh, We are working to make the border more secure. That has been a historic challenge.
3: All right. And he goes on about how difficult it's been to maintain the border. But Secretary Mayorkas, in my opinion, he's really missing the mark here because that was him on Tuesday claiming that the southern border is secure. He's uh, sitting down at the Aspen Security Forum where he's asked different questions about this. And he's saying it's a historic challenge. I mean, come on, you've got to do better than this. This is the same guy that said there is not a challenge or there's not a crisis at the border. There's not a crisis. And then there's a crisis. Very reminiscent of how Biden said inflation's transitory, it's just a blip, it's just a flash in the pan, and, oh, lo and behold, we've got inflation, and it's here to stay. It only goes up every month. And with the uh, producer price index that just came in, the more wholesale approach to uh, measuring inflation, it looks like it's at 11.4. The consumer price index is 9.1. Let's see what happens next month when they finally say we're officially in a recession. This is not going to be good, but this is what's happening at the border. Let us continue with this audio from Majorcas.
1: I have said to a number of legislators who expressed to me that um, we need to address the challenge at the border before um, they pass legislation, and I take issue with the math of holding the solution hostage until the problem is resolved. Um, Hold on a second. Who's
3: holding anything hostage. I think everybody's trying to have a solution. Just the solution that you are trying to have or propose is a solution where we keep letting people in and use border agents as travel agents, letting people in saying, where would you like to go? Would you like a uh, Greyhound? Would you like a private jet in the middle of the night to Westchester County? That is what's happening here, Uh, by the way, with a layover in Philly, of course. No, that's not how you handle this. You know, as well as anybody else, Mr. Secretary, that this thing needs to be shut down. But anyway, let's uh,
1: let him finish. Uh, there is work to be done um, when you safe and secure are two different words. There are smugglers that operate uh, on the Mexican side of the border um, and placing one's life in their hands is not safe.
3: Sir, you, Joe Biden, VP, Que mala eres, you guys are overseeing the biggest human smuggling operation that's ever happened in this country. This is the modern day slave trade, and it's you guys that we have to blame. They're not just operating on the Mexican side of the border. They're bringing people right through our border, and you're using our border agents as travel agents, putting them on Greyhound buses into D.C., whether it's Abbott, you know, saying we're going to send you to D.C. or we're going to send you to these blue states. It doesn't matter to me where they send them. The fact that they're in the country is the problem. This has to be fixed. That is the problem. And for you to say that that is somehow safe when there's this story that's being questioned and and being um, retold countless times about a 10-year-old girl being raped by an illegal alien, this is a big deal. I don't doubt that the girl was raped, even though the mom is saying that this is not, in fact, the case. I don't know what's going on here. Whatever it is, it doesn't look good. Now, in other news at the border, listen to this. This is from a pretty left-wing source, but it's an interesting story, Publica, investigative journalism in the public interest. Now, this one is, uh, Pharma companies sue for the right to buy blood from Mexicans along the border. A year after the U.S. barred Mexicans from crossing the border to sell their blood, pharmaceutical companies have acknowledged that those donations provided as much as 10% of the plasma collected nationwide, and they're seeking to have the ban overturned. In the year since the U.S. blocked them, they've discovered that this is affecting their supply seriously. So they filed a lawsuit challenging the ban, and the companies are acknowledging for the first time the extent to which Mexicans visiting the U.S. on short-term visas contribute to the world supply of blood plasma. Who would have known? Now, in court filings, the companies have revealed that up to 10% of the blood plasma collected in the U.S., millions of liters per year, came from Mexicans who crossed the border with visas that allow brief visits for business and tourism. The legal challenge from the organization based in Spain amounts to something that was initially dismissed by a federal judge but reinstated by the U.S. Court of Appeals in Washington, D.C., or the D.C. Circuit, I should say. The drug company's lawyers have said in court filings that the sharp reduction in Mexicans selling blood to U.S. border clinics is contributing to a worldwide shortage of plasma and is precipitating a worldwide public health crisis that's costing patients dearly. That's a quote from their lawsuit. Now, I find it interesting. It's the same excuse they're using now. They're saying, well, you know, we actually can't afford to continue to produce oil domestically because we have no way of refining it we 're at ninety six percent capacity on refining and I think that's interesting because we 're still not up to pre pandemic levels of production right we still have lots of things shut down that were fully operational under trump and under trump we were uh, there was liquid natural gas and there was fracking and there was a whole bunch of things going on but there was way more oil production that 's not happening now so how could they say that we're at our maximum capacity on oil refining? Hmm, it begs the question. Same here, where how is it that 10% of our supply is causing a global health crisis? What about the other 90%? It just, the math to me just doesn't add up here. But anyway, that's how it is. Speaking of math, it was a year ago on Tuesday that President Biden announced that inflation was not here to stay. It was just a flash in the pan. It was a blip on the screen. It was transitory, it's temporary. Listen to this.
4: We also know that as our we also know that as our economy has come roaring back, we've seen some price increases. Some folks have raised worries that this could be a sign of persistent inflation, but that's not our view. Our experts believe, and the data shows, that most of the price increases we've seen are were expected and are expected to be temporary.
3: Expect it to be temporary, but yet it's been a whole year since they've been here and it doesn't look like they're going anywhere. Now, you tell that whole temporary spiel to everybody that's taken the morning consult poll with Politico. That's Wednesday morning, July 20th. Here's the poll. Over three quarters of American voters believe President Joe Biden's America is on the wrong track. The poll asked respondents, now, generally speaking, would you say that things in the country are going in the right direction or have they pretty seriously gotten off the wrong track? 78% said the nation is on the wrong track under Biden. Only 22% said it was on the right track. I'm very curious to know who are these 22% of people that think things are fantastic with Biden. I'd love to know who they are. Anyway, the poll sampled 2000 voters, actually 2005 voters. From July 15th through the 17th with a two point margin of error. The survey also found that just 14 percent strongly approve of Biden, while 42 percent strongly disapprove of Biden, putting his approval rating 28 points underwater. Overall, 58 percent of the respondents disapproved of Biden, while 38 of them did, in fact, approve of him. The poll comes as the president's mental ability seems to have impacted his overall approval. 62% say Biden is not fit to be president because he is too old. A majority of voters believe that he's unfit to be president and doubt his mental ability. 59% are worried about his mental and physical fitness. Of course, this follows his uh, falling off the bike, which, again, I think was a simple mistake, a very honest mistake. But nonetheless, they have now called this... um, Brandon Falls, that's the the name, the, the spot where he fell is now known as Brandon Falls. And I think it's even recognized that way on Google Maps. Anyway, under Biden's leadership, the nation continues to suffer from a 40 year high in inflation. The southern border remains unsecured. Fentanyl has become the greatest killer amongst 18 to 45 year olds. Gas prices have increased to an all time high despite the 40 or 50 cent decrease. And weekly wages have shrunk along with supply chain woes that have continued. And that's according to Breitbart. So you tell me, how are things looking for Joe El Baboso Biden? Not very good at all. Now, the report from the Uvalde shooting has been released as well as this uh, story that came out over the weekend of a young man who pulled out his pistol immediately and stopped a mass shooter in a mall shooting people. I think he killed two people or three people within uh, seconds of opening fire, the gunman, when this young man that was shopping with his girlfriend said, I'm about to take this guy out and do the world a favor, and he did. Uh, So we're going to get to the bottom of that story with former... Deputy Assistant Director of the FBI, Danny Colson. He's the uh, commander of the hostage rescue team of the FBI. He's going to join us. I spoke with him on Monday night with respect to these topics on the Jim Bohannon Show, and I want to bring you a clip of that interview straight ahead. So don't move a muscle. Keep it locked right there. I am Rich Valdez. This is America.
0: This is America.
1: This is America. He's brown, he's bald, and he's breaking it down. This is America with Rich Valdez.
3: All right, America, welcome back. It's Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S on all the social media. And our guest is former FBI assistant director Danny Colson, the head of the hostage rescue team. And there's a report that's out from the Uvalde, Texas legislature about the Uvalde school shooting, and we're going to get to that in a moment. It was an eventful weekend, and it's proving to be an eventful week thus far. Plus, there was a shooting at a mall that was prevented by a good guy with a gun, so we want to jump into that as well. So, Danny Colson, welcome to the program, sir. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. You bet. So according to the Austin American statesman, uh, there was uh, several problems that they identified in uh, in the new video that was released as well as the report that was released. There's also some commentary from folks in this Texas state legislature. Representative Dustin Burrows had this to say. Listen to this.
2: There were multiple systemic failures. I would invite everybody to read the entire report. You cannot cherry pick one sentence and use it to say everything without reading it all together and with context. But if we need a simple phrase to describe what the report says, again, I would tell you multiple systemic
3: failures. All right. So, Danny Colson, give us your take on what you think occurred. What's your take on the report? Give us uh, your scoop. Well, I think the report is good as far as it goes, but it didn't go back far enough. Um, I have the
4: duty to create and command the FBI's hostage rescue team. And you ask brave men to do horrible things, but you have to prepare them to do them. A rescue of anybody, and I've I've recovered a few hostages in my life, and I will tell you, it's really hard, it's really difficult, and it takes an inordinate amount of training and preparation. Clearly, I think those officers down there are good officers. They don't know what to do. They had no idea what their mission was, how they were going to accomplish it. Um, the most important thing you have to do in a rescue is get in. You can be the best shot in the world. You can have the best armor. You can be the smartest, the bravest. But if you can't get through the door, you can't do anything. And they didn't have that capability. The idea they had to run around looking for a key to open a door is ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. I've, I was a fugitive guy, and I've been through probably 100 doors, and I only had a key for one. There are ways to get in to uh, lock doors, locked or unlocked, and these guys didn't know how to do that. So they're running around, or actually not running around, standing around, trying to figure out what to do, and even trying to figure out who's in charge, and I don't think they knew that. Thank God for Vortec. Those guys are the best trained people, the best recruited people there. And they came in, saw it was nonsense, and they went in and did their job. Unfortunately, they had to wait too long. And I guess I've said a lot there. I hope I've answered your question. But you've got to prepare mm-hmm. your people. You can't, you can't just say, we're going to rescue hostages. Well, how are you going to do that?
3: Yeah, and Danny Colson, well, how, that's what are exactly. What you to get in? Right. And that's why I, I wanted your perspective on it, because obviously uh, you've done this stuff and you've trained others in doing it. And uh, I guess my, my follow-up to that question is, you know, there's a, a one of the videos they put out. It, it shows um, a SWAT commander, Eduardo Canales, who comes in very quickly in the beginning, and you know, the the video he says, "Watch the door, watch the door," and then four shots come out. The next thing he says is, "Am I bleeding? Am I bleeding?" And then you see him grabbing his ear; he had gotten hit in the ear, and. It seemed like he was coming in hot, ready to get the guy. uh, And he he yells, we got to get in there. We've got to get in there. The guy's in the classroom right now. This is a quote from the transcript there. Uh, But it seems like that sense of urgency didn't go beyond him. Like, everybody behind him was like, all right, you go in there. We're we're not going in there. And, and I mean, I don't mean to make light of it. I just, I look at this and I think, you know, I've had family in law enforcement, too. My brother served in NYPD. I volunteered with law enforcement. I think all all of what uh, I've learned and seen throughout my life was always this is you putting yourself on the line in, in duty and sacrifice to others. And, and I, I didn't see so much of that. And I wonder, is that a lack of training or uh, a systemic lack of, of vision for, for a particular department or team? I think it's training.
4: You saw what what happened when a very well trained group came in, Bortak. Yeah, they came in and they didn't mess around. They went and killed the guy. And that's the difference. If you're not trained to do the job we want you to do, you can't do it, and you're going to fail. Also, think about this. You're supposed to go in and rescue those kids. You don't know how to get in. You don't know how to get in. One of the things I think I would really like to make a point of, if I can, sure. is that law enforcement quit, re, quit using shotguns. We don't use them anymore. We want to be, use the sexy ARs or, the, or M4s. And go in and shoot the bad guys like we're in Iraq or Afghanistan. But we're not in Iraq. We're not Afghanistan. And I will tell you that a 5.56 five, bullet is not suitable to breach a door. A shotgun that we used to carry all the time, that was our primary weapon, will breach any door that's made in the United States. I've breached many of them in training and and research. A 12-gauge uh um, round will breach any door in the united states you knock it right out and you go out right and you do your job but they weren't armed with the right weapons in my view I don't, i'm a kind of a dinosaur and it's not sexy <laughs> to carry a 12- gauge shotgun like i carried all my career like i carry now uh, that's just not kind of in but you know what with a shotgun you can breach the door you walk up you put the barrel a couple inches from the door to, to um, from the lock off to the side and you blow the lock off and you go in and kill the guy And that's what they – they can't do that now. And they don't have the tools, either rams or breaching equipment or whatever, to do their job. So the the officials and law enforcement down there, they're the ones to be criticized the most. They did not equip their people or train them how to do their job.
3: All right, folks, we're on with uh, Danny Colson's former uh, deputy assistant director of the FBI, commander of the FBI hostage rescue team. Now, Danny Colson, I want you to – listen to uh, another clip that I have number six same representative Texas State Representative Dustin Burroughs you mentioned the door and I think this is really interesting listen to this
2: the statements from Bortak were yes they put a key in the door and they unlocked it there's enough information to be very uncertain whether or not that door was ever locked the committee believes based on all the testimony and information we've received it was very likely that door was either not locked or secured at the time. However, I am not willing to tell you with 100% absolute certainty that we know, and we may never know, whether or not that door was actually locked and secured at that time, but there's a strong, Emphasis, And we put it in the report that it is more likely than not very strong. that If somebody had just gone up and tried the door handle, they could have opened it without a key.
3: So they couldn't have opened it without a key. And again, I don't know if that's true or not, like he said, but it just it's interesting to, to note that, you know, there's this talk of breaching doors and and I don't know that there was a, an effort to just try to get in. And it it just, to me, it's just startling as, you know, and again, not a, uh, an expert like you are, but I think a lot of parents look at this and they think, man, did they try hard enough? And I'm not trying to indict the police. I love the police, but it just is so troubling to, to see these videos. Danny Colson.
4: Um, I heard that. Um, but frankly, if I've got a guy on the other side of the door with a rifle, when I get to that door, I'm going to blow the thing open go in and kill him that are I'm my man will somebody will but to go in and shake on the door um that wife will go through that door and he had he had hundreds of rounds with him. So I, I think that's kind of a specious argument. Okay. Um I I was in the business of breaching doors. I did it as an operator as a commander and you go and you breach the damn door. You don't go shaking on it. Well let's see if it's locked or not you don't do that because he'll shoot you. What you do, you go up and knock that door down with a ram or you knock it down with a shotgun blast or an explosive charge. You go in and do it. And you know what? That's not very sophisticated. I'm not talking about spending a lot of money. I'm talking about going to to uh, Ace Hardware and buying a 12-gauge shotgun and putting 12-gauge uh, uh, slugs in it or 12-gauge buckshot and just blowing the door down. That's not, that's not a whole lot. You're not spending a lot of money. But, you know, let's do it. If, if we're going to have... Any kind of response to civil shootings, we got to prepare the people to do it. And we're not doing that.
3: Right. Yeah, and that's that's a point well made. Just as we saw in this um, unrelated story, but over the weekend, this mall shooting, uh, a guy with a handgun took out uh, a would-be shooter just because he acted very, very quickly. And I think you're right. If you take out the shooter, you take out the shooter. It's a very good point. Folks, we're on with Danny Colson, former uh, deputy assistant director of the FBI, commander of their hostage rescue team. We're going to get to your calls if you have questions for Danny Colson. There's more to come with our guest straight ahead. I'm Rich Valdez. This is America.
2: 45th President Donald Trump thinks it's an honor to speak with Rich Valdez.
4: Oh, very good, Mr. Carl Screener. Yeah. That's an honor. Thanks, Rich.
2: The honor is all
3: yours. Conservative talk with a dash of sofrito. Now, here's Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. It's Rich Valdez. We're on with Danny Colson, former assistant Deputy Director of the FBI, and we're talking about the shooting that occurred at a mall in Indiana. Let us go to Missouri and uh, check in with uh, Sharon. Welcome, Sharon.
5: Hello, gentlemen. Um, I have a son who has been in law enforcement for 35 years. I am not an expert, but one thing I do know is that when you have a shooter and if he's holding hostages then you may have time for negotiation but once he has started killing people you have to put it out of your mind what might possibly be happening to those hostages and your only aim is to get to the shooter and take him out you cannot wait and, and hope that he's not going to kill everybody. Once he's already pulled the trigger and started killing people, it is your job to get in and take him out.
3: Yep. Thank you, Sharon. I, I tend to agree with that. Danny Colson, your response? Yeah, Sharon, you're 100% right.
4: But you have to teach them how to get in.
3: And that's, that's the dispositive word here.
4: I totally agree with everything you said, and I've done that. But I will tell you, I was trained re- very well how to get in. When I had the HRT or any, any other uh, tactical operation I've ever run, my guys had the ability to get in. These guys didn't, and that's the point I'm trying to make. I'm not excusing the fact that they didn't get in. What I'm being critical of is that their commander didn't prepare them to get in and do their
3: job. Point well taken. Danny Colson, thank you. Now I want to shift gears a little bit and uh, play this clip of audio from over the weekend with that happened in Greenwood. Indiana, cut number two. Listen to this.
2: The Good Samaritan. Once again, he has authorized us to release his name. He is requesting you give him time to process uh, and and grieve himself uh, before reaching out to him. His name is Elijah Dickin, and that is spelled E L I S J S H A, and he resides in Seymour, Indiana. He was at the mall last night with his girlfriend
3: shopping. All right, so this is uh, the story of a 22-year-old who's his, with his girlfriend. He's at a shopping mall. He sees a shooter pull out a rifle and he starts shooting into the food court. And the the, the mass shooter is has, I think, killed at least two people by the time, two minutes into his attack when um, Mr. Dickens sees him, grabs his pistol, takes out the bad guy, and ends the scene. Danny Colson, what are your thoughts on this one?
4: Amazing. American hero, uh, to take on a man with a, uh, AR rifle with a five, five, six or whatever caliber it was. Mm-hmm. And you only have a Glock pistol. That takes a great deal of courage, but also takes a great deal of skill with that handgun uh, most people have gotten up and got out of there. This guy answered the call and he, he killed the guy, uh, a great risk to himself. And he, he may have saved 20 people's lives. And I see now there's some anti-gun groups that are complaining the fact that we called him a good Samaritan. Uh, I'm not going to call him a good Samaritan. i call him an American hero. He had guts and courage, and I would hope that I would have that much uh, courage of my own self and do the same thing. But that what a courageous act uh, act of heroin. He should get the Presidential Medal of Freedom for that.
3: Yeah, and I I agree with that. And I find it interesting, though, that there are people like this. I'm going to read you a quote from somebody that put a comment on, I guess it looks like Twitter here, and I'm trying to get the name of the person, but I'll give you the the gist of it here. They're basically saying that they don't know who needs to hear this, but a 22-year-old illegally brings a loaded gun into a mall, which is supposed to be a gun-free zone, kills a mass shooter with an AR-15, who's already killed three people and wounds others. This is not a ringing endorsement of our implementation of the Second Amendment. This is uh, from Moms Demand Action founder, Shannon Watts. Now, I hear that and I think, why is this person mad? I think this guy saved the day. Who knows, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Shannon uh, Watts is correct. What do you think?
4: She's not right. Um, like Ron White says, you can't fix stupid. You can't deal <laughs> with people like that. He saved lives there, and the fact that he may have made some administrative uh, violation of not uh, bringing the gun into a mall or something—I don't care about that. What I care about is the fact the guy saved lives. If I, my wife had been there with our grandchildren, and he did save it, I, I'd have been internally grateful. And I'm grateful to him right now, and hope that hope it encourages more people to to arm themselves, learn how to use their weapon, and be armed to protect society. Because remember, the cops are minutes away and seconds matter.
3: That's right. Folks, we're on with Danny Coulson, former uh, FBI Deputy Assistant Director and Commander of FBI's HRT Hostage Rescue Team. Danny Coulson, in the minute that we have left, uh, let us know what you're up to now about Coulson Associates, how people can follow you online, and what we can expect from you.
4: Oh, we have a website, uh, www.colsonsecure.com.
3: Danny Colson, former FBI director, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Look forward to hearing no, thank from you, you. again uh, soon. It was
4: fun to be with you.
3: Thanks, Colson. Likewise. Me Thanks. Will do. Far. Don't go anywhere. It's Rich Valdez.
4: This is America. This is America. Para Ingles o Primal Número dos. Para Rich Valdez y esto es America. Ahora.
3: All right, America, welcome back, Rich Valdez. Valdez with an S at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. Make sure you give me a follow there. And I want to big thank you, big big thank you to everybody that uh, is checking out the podcast and subscribing to the podcast and signing up for the automatic downloads and notifications. This way you never miss an episode. I appreciate that. Just go to This Is America with Rich Valdez on your favorite podcast application on your cell phone or your tablet, and you'll never miss it. Or you could just stream it live through your phone, or you could listen live on our radio if people still do that. I love live radio. That is my first love. So anyway, I want to give you a couple of headlines because a few things that have been going on. That I want to bring you up to speed on. We already talked about Mallorca saying that the southern border is secure despite all of the other craziness. But there was all this talk about the UK and the UK being really hot. It's hot as hell. And I'm thinking, who cares? Really, what, what's the big deal that for like two days straight dominating the headlines that the UK is having a heat wave? What does that matter when we've got all sorts of things happening here in our country? Now, some other news from the U.K., they're in a big race to replace Boris Johnson, who quit, and now it's down to two candidates. So if you're interested in that stuff, you can check that out anywhere else. But I'm not going to get into that. What do I care about what's going on in the U.K.? Now, Steve Bannon, he, um, former White House chief strategist, he is demanding that his accusers on the January 6th committee face him at trial. Good move, because... That's what the Constitution says. Now, of course, they don't care about the Constitution, and of course, it's not a criminal proceeding. uh, So there are no um, federal rules of evidence in a January 6th hearing, but in an actual trial there are. So we'll see how that continues to pan out. We've also got Biden considering uh, the declaration of a national emergency over abortion pills. Now, earlier in the week, he was also considering a national emergency to quell the climate issue. Saying, you know, who knows what, whether you could fill your gas tank or not fill it. Don't know what's coming down the pipe there, but I think it's going to be somewhat unconstitutional. But again, would this be the first time that we've seen unconstitutional mandates coming out of this administration? No, it would not. So that's there as well. Plus, the first lady of Ukraine is visiting the White House this week. Okay, big deal. Uh, Welcome to her. Now, there was a story in Mediaite. And again, I don't know if this story, how true the story is, but it was being pushed. So I want to address it. Uh, It's by Candace Ortiz on Mediaite.com. Headline, Joe Rogan calls Trump a man baby and theorizes he was on Adderall during his presidency. Now, the reason I want to bring this up is because the left has championed the term neurodivergent. And this is if you have um, executive function issues, what they now or used to call ADHD, attention deficit disorder, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, you would take Adderall, you would take Ritalin, you would take Vivance, you would take any number of stimulant drugs to help you regulate your fast moving mind, and that would solve the problem. For some people, it's easily fixed with caffeine or soda or whatever. The point is, they put kids on this stuff all the time. So let us just say that, like the CEO of JetBlue or the former CEO of JetBlue, that said, I would never treat my ADD because that's what gives, you, gives me my spontaneity. That's what gives me my creativity. That's what's allowed me to become CEO of JetBlue. Let us just say that that's the case for Trump. And I'm not saying it is, but let us just say it was. Why would we call him a man baby and beat him up for taking his medicine? This is a problem because you can't go around saying that you, you want to label people as neurodivergent and then in the same breath, Say, no, 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 you can't be neurodivergent. Now you're a man, baby. Now you're abusing Adderall. Nobody knows if he has a prescription. What do you think? Trump was going to Lafayette Park across the street when nobody was looking and said, hey, hey, you guys got Addies? Can I get some Addies?" Do you really think that was happening? Of course not. Now, again, I'm not not admitting that Trump took it. I don't know what he did. But I am saying that if he did want to take them, why couldn't he just go to his doctor and say, "I, I need to focus better. I'm having some attention issues. And they could give him a prescription for that. What makes that an abuse? It doesn't. And this is the hypocrisy of the left. Now, if Rogan went in on this on a joke or on a tangent, I I haven't even heard the audio. Uh, This isn't against Rogan, Uh, he could say what he wants. This is about how the left makes a story about this. And yes, they do this to Trump all the time, but I wanted to point out specifically how they did it in this case, where they wanna stick up for people that are neurodivergent. They want you to be she, him, he, her, uh, neurodivergent, BIPOC, black, indigenous, person of color, Etc., 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 ABC, XYZ. That's what they want you to do to identify yourself. But when it's somebody they don't like, they're happy to skewer you however they can. It's totally hypocritical and it's totally uncalled for. Now, moving straight ahead. Last week there was a story about Starbucks closing 16 stores in major US cities over a surge in crime. Now, I find this to be so ironically apropos why because this article is from July 12th about a week ago but what happened 2 years ago in July well i'll read you some headlines July 7th 2019 Starbucks excuse me Starbucks apologizes after police officers are asked to leave the store that's NPR abc news six officers asked to leave Starbucks in Arizona July 7th 2019 Starbucks apologizes to police officers after six officers were asked to leave their Arizona store. Reuters, July 7th, 2019. Starbucks apologizes to Tempe, Arizona officers who were asked to leave their location July 8th, 2019. Isn't that fascinating? And I believe something similar happened in Philly. And the reason this happened was because in Philly there was an altercation, right, where the cop was in the store. And they were like, oh, you can't use the bathroom here, right? So, of course, you guys remember that stuff. None of us have short memories that way. They went on an attack against the police because it was en vogue to hate the cops. It was en vogue to go after the police. And where are they today? Closing 16 stores. Who does that hurt? Well, of course it hurts Starbucks' bottom line, but it also hurts their employees. The potentially BIPOC population that works behind the counter. The same people you're trying to protect by kicking the cops out, now you have crime. So much crime that you got to close your stores. Listen to this. Starbucks is closing 16 stores nationwide including one in Washington D.C., reporting an increase in drug use amongst customers in major cities across the United States. Uh, excuse me, the United States. So people are going into Starbucks to use their lavatory or whatever and get high. Six of the stores will be closed in Los Angeles. Ha! Six giant coffee stores in Seattle, two in Portland, one in Oregon, one in Washington, D.C., and one in Philadelphia by the end of the month. Now, isn't it interesting how all of these woke DAs and the woke agenda and the woke Starbucks idiots that kick the cops out of their stores now are losing their jobs? Now, of course, Starbucks says we're going to reassign them to other stores in the area. But listen, if you're in Philly and they say, hey, look, we're going to reassign you to Cherry Hill or maybe even further into Jersey, let's just say. And you can't get there on public transportation in time because you got to pick up your kid from daycare. You got to go here. You got to go there. That's it. You're out of a job. Now, although the company's closing uh, 16 out of their 9000 stores, these closures come as employees report feeling unsafe in the stores because employees said they're witnessing an increase in drug use, thefts and assaults, according to The Wall Street Journal. Here's a quote. We read every incident report that you file. It's a lot. That's the U.S. operations lead, Debbie Stroud, and Denise Nelson. They told U.S. employees on Monday, according to the outlet, we cannot serve as partners if we don't feel safe at work. The corporation is also giving managers greater control over the hours of their stores, seating arrangements, and the power to restrict access to the bathrooms in order to alleviate some of the safety concerns. Employees will also be trained in how to handle active shooter scenarios and how to de-escalate conflict with customers, a Starbucks spokesperson told the outlet. Like so much of the world right now, Starbucks is a business that is built but not fully set up to satisfy evolving behaviors. What an idiot the evolving behaviors or expectations of their customers. That's Howard Schultz. I'm glad that guy didn't become president. Not more than 6,600 employees in Starbucks have attempted to unionize in 30 states. Employees in 133 locations have unionized. Who cares? Nobody's talking about unionization. We're talking about junkies going into your store, or I guess you probably can't call them junkies anymore. We have to call them People battling addiction issues or people that choose to use drugs right, or whatever it is. People with the capacity to get high. How about that one? Now, what's fascinating to me here is the same people that cause this problem are now causing a problem for themselves. Now, I worked at Dunkin' Donuts when I was 15 years old. One of the first things they told us was if the police officer comes in here in uniform uh, or you could see their badge if they're plain clothes, everything's on the house. Give them whatever they need. And the reason they did that was because they wanted cops there as often as they could. And it was the cheapest way to have a near full-time police. And the old joke about, you know, the cops are getting donuts. That's why. Because the donut shops offer them free coffee at night. They offer them free donuts, free egg sandwiches, whatever it is. Now, many police aren't allowed to accept those kinds of freebies or there's a limit on how much of a freebie they can get. They might be able to get the coffee but not the donut or the sandwich. Whatever it is, they negotiate, right? And they say, no, 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 I insist on paying But my point was that they always had cops coming in. Every shift, there was somebody in there. And you build rapport, you build a first-name basis, and you've got cops that, you know, even if they're not buying coffee and they need to use the restroom, they'll stop by, you know, the Dunkin' and pop their head in. But those who tried to do that with Starbucks, because maybe they like Starbucks coffee better, well, they found out very rudely that they weren't allowed in the store. Now, this is where, it, it, to me, there's such a rub. Because they could have been safe. They could have been secure. They could have avoided having junkies in their store. But they decided to give a big f u middle finger salute in the face of the police. And now they're paying the price. So I'm glad that they're closing those stores. I stopped going to Starbucks years ago. A, the, the coffee's too bitter. Although it is strong, and it definitely gives me a little buzz. You know, I start talking a lot faster than I normally do. But I'm done with them. I'm done with them because they're stupid and to suggest that they need to adjust to the changing patterns of behavior of their customers. Oh, we're not prepared to handle junkies. You don't handle junkies. You don't let them in. You don't let them bathe in your bathroom. You don't let them invade your store and harass your customers, and you let the cops in. And it's all called being a grown-up and saying, you know what? We made a mistake, and we want the cops back. But it's like the Biden administration, one bad decision after the next where they lie and they lie and they lie and they spin and they spin and they spin. And listen, politics is fil- filled with spin and it's filled with lies. But ultimately, you have to produce results because people care. Ultimately, it's people that we know. It's people that we love. It's people that we trust. It's people that we invest into. It's all about the people. That's why the Constitution says we the people. This is up to us to do what is right. I am so glad That this happened. And I wanted to mention it when the story broke uh, a week ago, but um, I didn't have the opportunity. So now that I did, I'm glad we got that out of the way because this has to stop. People need to realize the point of a business is not for you to interpret social norms and values and impose them upon your customer base, your stakeholders, or your investors, but it is to affect your own bottom line. Now, I know that they're trying to change the rules, and they're desperately trying to change these rules so that they could redefine how they do things and say that if you don't meet this new ESG score, the environmental, um, whatever, uh, sustainable governance score, you're out, or or society, or whatever it is, ESG. Did a whole thing on it. I'll I'll post that whole interview with uh, Gabriella Hoffman. Uh, it was a very, very good interview from the Independent Women's Forum. I'll put it separately as a separate standalone interview in the podcast feed if you want to check it out. But it, it, this is important to know because this is, again, us standing for something because if we stand for nothing, we fall for anything. And, of course... The only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good people like you to sit there and do nothing. So we're going to continue talking about the news of the day and giving you the analysis that you need and all of the breaking news headlines and my thoughts on all of that stuff. Follow me on whatever social media like at Rich Valdez with an S. And always right here on 1210 WPHT, Saturdays at noon, Sundays at 6 a.m., getting you the scoop before the Sunday shows do. Hasta la proxima. Until the next time, I am Rich Valdez. And this is America.
4: This is America.